When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. And this week is a Cosmic Queries edition, the always popular Cosmic Queries. And the topic, the always popular Search for Life in the universe. And I've got with me is my co-host, Matt Kirshen. Matt! Hey! Hey, Neil. How you doing? Okay. I spent all day yesterday trying to memorize the name of your podcast. It's probably science. Did I it get is. it right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, I, I always mangled it. going to go for another variant. <laughs> I, I stumbled in my efforts there. I found a podcast called Sometimes or Mostly Science. It's a whole oh, other podcast. We, oh, we and hate so, them. No, we've got a running rivalry with them. It's going to be totally come, have rivalries. I got to make sure I get your stuff right. Probably it's come to violence at some point. <laughs> Probably so, violence. So I know a little bit about the search for life, but not as much as our guest today. Uh, our guest today is Sarah Seeger. Sarah, welcome to Star Talk. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, so Sarah, let me get your full uh, t- title up here. So, uh, you're a professor of aeronautics and astronautics, physics, and planetary science at MIT. Is that what? Well, no, they left out a few categories. <laughs> I think. No, 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 no. It's it's because exoplanets and the search for life is an incredibly interdisciplinary topic. Okay. And it draw, draws upon all those different fields. Excellent. But between you and me, can I call <laughs> you're a planetary scientist, right? That's really. Yes, yes. Mo- I mean, my home is really in astrophysics. Okay. So you could call me an astrophysicist or a planetary okay, so you're scientist in the club. or both. <laughs> <laughs> in the club. So uh, I guess the search for life in the universe has to necessarily include the search for exoplanets, right? They, 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 right. they go together. But is that part of our bias? Not necessarily. We do. I mean, we're, we're definitely Terra-centric. We're, we definitely are narrow-minded. 
But at the same time, like Earth-centric. yeah, like Earth-centric, you know, and on Earth, we believe that for the origin of life, we need a place for ingredients to concentrate. And it's, it's hard to imagine ingredients just, you know, concentrating in, in the vastness and that low density of outer space. Okay, so this concentration thing, I think, is under-celebrated out there. I mean, in the public, they have to, people, we take it for granted that we have rocks and buildings and mountains and people. And for in our greater universe, nothing is together. <laughs> I mean, mostly, it's mostly empty. And where it's not mostly empty, it's highly rarefied. And so planets are really special places. Is that, is right, that fair they to are. call it that? Very special because they do concentrate complex molecules. They concentrate elements, nutrients, and everything we need. Am I right in thinking they are substantially less special or at least less rare than we thought they were even five, ten years ago? Yes, actually. We are are slowly making ourselves less and less precious, less and less special. (laughs) (laughs) No, Sarah, it's okay to know that. You're not just supposed to tell people that. (laughs) I I think that's nice about science. I I like the fact that scientists sort of switch between going, you're incredibly special and you're not special. (laughs) we, We do. We love thinking back to the Copernican revolution, where before Copernicus, the model of the universe was that our Earth literally was at the center of the universe. All the planets and the sun and the stars apparently all orbited Earth. I think I've heard, is it Andrean uh, described this sequence, uh, some combination of her and the, and the Carl Sagan uh, camp uh, referred to it as the sequence of great demotions <laughs> for, for whatever we imagined ourselves to be. Plus, there was some rebuttal to that. Um, I forgot the fellow's name, but he wrote, I think, convincingly that the idea, that the idea that we are in the center is not necessarily an elevated place if heavens are above us, right? So the center could be the slag heap of where everything collects, and your ultimate goal is to ascend from that to greater places. So, But in either case, the, the location was unique, I think, to think about it. So, so in his mind, we're like the plug hole of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> we're sort of the drain. <laughs> so, so Sarah, you was it natural to transition from exoplanet discovery to the search for life? Or did someone have to sort of nudge you, or was it just obvious as the next thing to do? You know, every scientist is different, and I've sort of been the random walk type of scientist. Like, work on a problem and see a more interesting problem, and then move over sl- slowly. You like the dog I being think, distract, distracted by the squirrel, you know? Squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> you can't keep it. <laughs> but so but, I, I think but it, when you started out um, in the in the late nineties, um, we there, we didn't didn't know many exoplanets, and even those that we did, it was fun to think of aliens on them, but there was no research program there yet. So so it seems to me you were there at the birth of this, if not having birthed it yourself. Yes, and in fact, but just to go back even further, before my time, perhaps even before yours, but in the decades <laughs> past, since the... <laughs> even um, before there Neil. Is, there is no such no, thing. No, no um, okay, well, you know, Neil what's is interesting always. is if, if you look back, like even, you know, just after um, the time of Sputnik, like in the early 1960s, there's actually a report from a, a think tank kind of company, and it actually talks about planets and exoplanets and the chance for other Earths. And even in the decades after that, you know, there were always studies 
on how would we go about finding another Earth. And so when Exoplanets was born in the mid-1990s, and yes, I was there, I was a graduate student working on Exoplanets at the time, you know, they were hot Jupiters, they were not suitable for life in any way. But slowly those two things came together, you know, all the past decades of thinking about Earths, then switching gears to the hot giant planets. And so the thought of finding Earths and life, it was kind of always there in the background, even though it might have been a bit of a stretch. And just to be clear, the, the Jupiters that you're referring to being hot was it was easier to find really massive planets first compared to low-mass planets. So you're going to find right. a Jupiter first, and, we, and they're hot because why? Because they're very close to the star, so close to the star that as heated by the star, they're just hot. Okay, so the Jupiters, but they didn't look like our Jupiter. So, so there again, we were not. So, so we yeah. we thought we were representative of the universe, and we're not. I mean, at least our solar system. Right, right. We always expected to find a Jupiter where our Jupiter is, which is you know five times further from our sun than Earth is. And instead, we found Jupiter mass objects within a few you know few day period orbits of, of the star. So even our bias that which shows up every day in race relations and sexism, it even shows up in astrophysics. Just it did, yeah. <laughs> and you know the funny thing is is just to take that a level further, when we people first found these hot Jupiters so close to the star, we just assumed that they had the same albedo, the same reflectance properties as Jupiter itself. Jupiter is quite bright, you know, you see it in the sky because it's got icy clouds. And we couldn't see Jupiter in reflected light. And with a little more thought, we realized, wow, these hot Jupiters, they're incredibly dark. They're very absorbing. They have no reflective clouds, wow. most of them. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so they're not only... So they're big Jupiters that don't look anything like Jupiter. <laughs> That's what you're <laughs> saying. <laughs> like, I mean, yes and no. They don't appear like their atmospheres aren't like Jupiter, but uh -huh. they're kind of bulk composition. They're mostly made of hydrogen and helium. That part's the same. All right, so if you come to this as an astrophysicist, planetary scientist... And now you want to think about life. You got to start knocking on the doors of biologists. So when did all that happen? Remarkably, it, it really, it started happening for me when I had my first staff position. I worked at a place called the Carnegie Institute of Science. And I was in Washington, D.C. And it's quite interdisciplinary there already. And they were already part of, of working on the somewhat new field back then of astrobiology. So I started interacting with biologists there. And the funny thing was, is I got a postdoc there and I signed him up to work with me. And it literally took us like nine months before we could even understand each other because our <laughs> language was so different. Yeah. So you need the coffee lounges, you know, between uh, at the intersections of departments because otherwise we just live in our stovepipes and discoveries go un, un, uh, unattended to. It's true. It's true. And later on, I attended an astrobiology conference and I met a remarkable person there who became one of my closest colleagues. And so then through him, him being a biologist, I was able to learn and accrete more, more collaborators. And so, I mean, you have a fascinating story. I only recently learned that you've actually uh, collected that together in a, in a kind of a memoir, The Smallest Lights in the Universe. So congratulations on that memoir uh, published by Crown Thank in you. 2020. And because we're all distracted by big explosions and big lights and big things, but maybe the smallest lights in the universe, I guess these are the exoplanets, um, or it could be metaphor for other things um, yes. in the book, that it's uh, just call attention to other um, previously underserved domains of the cosmos. Thanks. Yeah. <clears throat> so so let's, get straight, let's get straight to this. Uh, what is life? 
You know, in exoplanets, we have a good excuse for completely avoiding that question. (laughs) (laughs) And we do, we do. I'll I'll run it by you. I'll run it by you. All right. Because we have telescopes and we can see atmospheres of other planets. We're hoping with our next generation telescopes to see atmospheres of small rocky planets. And we're going to look for signs of life by way of gases that might be attributed to life that have accumulated in the atmosphere. So we prefer to think about what life does. Life metabolizes, and it may give off gases during that chemical process of metabolism. So we conveniently sweep that under the rug, and we just talk about what life does. Are you sweeping under the rug because you can't do anything about that question anyway? We can't do anything about it, and it's just a question that no one wants to agree on what, what the answer is. So you, bought, you sweep it under the rug and say, let's do what life, let's observe what life does. So you're the atmospheric gases equivalent to the people who study um, animal poop, for example. <laughs> it's it's yeah. things that life does, even if you're not studying the life itself. Is that? That's right. That's right. Not, not to equilibrate your study with yes. the study of feces. But and actually, Neil, that is, that's never been done before. So that is brand new. <laughs> it's a brand new analogy. <laughs> so you're saying atmospheres on planets are kind of the... Uh animal remains of the galaxy. <clears throat> well, the gaseous effluences, I guess. Yes, so, actually, that's a, that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, so, Sarah, but, but clearly there are gases out there. Um, and I want to get to the Q&A because Matt has them lined up, and I don't want to lose any time on that. But clearly there's, there's some gases, let's take methane, for example, um, that we know is the byproduct of life, not all life, of course, but some bacterial life, on Earth, we, we know that. So now let's look to another place like Saturn's moon Titan. Oh my gosh, it's completely covered in methane. So it must be teeming with life. So we, but it's not. So how, where do, how, what, you, yeah, wow. Yeah, that's the single most biggest problem that we need to be able to see other gases in the atmosphere and put the gas in question in context with what else is there. But even doing that will be, it'll still be hard. It'll be very, like a forensic crime scene, you know? How do we pick out what is really life, what is really not made by life? So the gases you list that are the products of life are necessary but insufficient to prove that there's life. Yes, actually. And that is the sort of, let's call it the dirty secret of the whole field, uh-huh. is that we'll never be able to prove it. So, it, so in, in forensic crime scene terms, you've sort of got to distinguish between blood that was caused by the crime and blood that was just previously existing, sort of decorative blood in that room. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> just blood that someone had put there that would just naturally be there on the walls in the Yeah, the pack. normal blood that, would, that exists in the room. I'm, I'm yeah, sure yeah. Sarah is going to put that analogy in her next research paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, just right. just add so, an equation and that's all science is, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, if it's in an equation, you know, it's legit. Yeah. And so on our Earth, we have methane produced by life, by bacteria, you know, by cows. But we also have methane coming out of mid-ocean ridges. So in a lot of cases, it is definitely ambiguous. And methane is natural gas that we have in our stoves. And I'm pretty sure what's coming out of your stove is is not cow farts. (laughs) It's come from another location (laughs) on Earth. (laughs) Okay. So, Matt, we have a couple of minutes left in this segment. Let's let's see if we can squeeze in a question. Okay, great. Well, this one, I I love the questions that come from uh, our younger listeners. Uh, The questions are all from Patreon today. This one comes from Carrie Jenkins, an eight-year-old fan. Eight! How long... 
I know. Eight. How long do you think it'll take for us to find other life in the universe? Yeah, how close are we, Sarah? How many, how, how many more years? What do we got here? Well, we actually will have, we like to say we'll have the key. I'm not purposely trying to evade all your questions, honestly, but <laughs> I would like to say that we will have the capability to find signs of life very soon with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. But whether we find life, that really depends on what's out there. You know, if every planet has life, if life is extremely common, life that makes gases. So I, if you want a concrete answer, I could say anywhere between two years and 30 years, let's say. Okay, so this would be the, the life, the usable life expectancy of the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, I was putting the James Webb, whose nominal life expectancy is five years, maybe 10. I was thinking of future telescopes beyond the James Webb. Okay, and possibly uh, missions to the icy moons of uh, Jupiter, um, where there might be life beneath the surface, or even life in, beneath the surface of Mars, right? I mean, why right, not? Right. You're not looking for that life, but you got other people, top people doing that as well. Right. Okay, so we might find life, or definitely know there isn't life as we know it, in the lifetime of this eight-year-old girl. Well, maybe this eight-year-old girl will carry the torch. Ooh. If all the searches we're doing now are exhausted, maybe she'll be the one to think of the next new idea. Oh, life. Ooh. maybe you all aren't clever enough and we need her to come along and solve <laughs> all the problems. Okay. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, more Star Talk Cosmic Queries with my friend and colleague, Sarah Seeger. We'll be right back. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. 
Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hey, I'm Roy Hill Percival, and I support StarTalk on Patreon. Bringing the universe down to Earth, this is StarTalk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back, Star Talk, Cosmic Queries, the Search for Life edition. I got with me my co-host, Matt Kirshen. Matt, where do we find hey. your podcast? Oh, just all, all the podcast places. All oh, oh, your, oh, your, your nearby stores a- have it. Any of them, yeah. Go, 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 to your local, uh, go to your local podcast supplier and just ask for Probably Science, and they'll find it somewhere in the back there. Excellent, excellent. They'll go you, through their files. Do you also do stand-up comedy? I do. Well, I used to when when indoor things were existed. Right now, I, I talk into Zoom recordings and pretend I'm doing stand up. Okay, this is during uh, the, in the but, in the COVID lockdown. That's what it is. But okay. yeah, that that was my day job, and hopefully, will be again. Excellent, excellent. And we have as my special guest Sarah Seeger, who's a astrophysicist, planetary scientist, and is searching for the exoplanets, searching for life, and she's our resident expert in this moment to field these questions that Matt has solicited from our fan base. And this is the Patreon fan base. So what more do you have, Matt, for us? I, I do. Also, by the way, uh, we should mention that our guest today isn't the only one with a new book out. And you've got a book based on Cosmic Queries that has a chapter that talks about the search for light. Oh, yes, indeed. So, so thank, thanks for mentioning that, because I almost forgot. I probably wouldn't have forgotten by the end, but there's a book called Cosmic Queries. Because this format was so successful, we said we've got to do more than just put it out there as a podcast. So there's a book called Cosmic Queries that takes all the biggest questions, including this one, and much of Sarah's research that informs this field is contained in that chapter. And so in a celebration of Cosmic Queries as a thing and the search for life as a, as a sub-thing of the bigger thing, We've got Sarah Seeger. So, Sarah, thank you again for being on Star Talk and for checking in for this. So, Matt, what do you have for us? Well, I've got to do another Cosmic Query question from another young Patreon listener. This comes from Violetta and Violetta's mom, Izzy. Violetta is a 12 and a half year old astrophysicist here half. in Birmingham, Alabama. 12 and, yeah, and, 12 and a half. When you're young, those halves are important. <laughs> and. And asked Professor Seeger, I want to know, firstly, what exactly are biosignature gases? And secondly, what biosignature gases would Earth give off that would be detectable by extraterrestrial life who might be looking for inhabited planets like ours? Perfect question. Would, yes, Sarah, yeah, what do you Or got? would ETs not need yes. to look for our biosignature gases because our existence would be pretty obvious because, duh, space junk. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, a biosignature gas is a signature of life. It's a gas produced by life that can accumulate in an atmosphere of a planet to a level that we can detect with our telescopes. You know, I love to imagine, you know, there, there are intelligent aliens on a planet orbiting a nearby star, and they have the kind of space telescopes we're building or hoping to build. They would look at our Earth, and they would definitely see a very strong biosignature gas. 
and that's oxygen. And oxygen fills our atmosphere to 20% by volume. But without plants, without photosynthetic bacteria, we would have literally virtually no oxygen. So if all the plant life went away, you know, walked off the earth today, how long would it take for our oxygen supply to sort of drop to zero? And why would it drop at all? Why wouldn't it just stay there? Well, we also have bacteria that make oxygen. So I'm not sure, you know, what the division. So no, 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 just take away everything that's making oxygen. Take everything away. And so now Um, we've got 20% oxygen. What happens to it? Well, what happens to it is oxygen is a highly reactive gas. And it will just react away with other molecules in the atmosphere, with lots of things on the surface, you know, with gases coming out of vents and volcanoes. And that oxygen just won't be there. And how about how, so, over how much time yeah. would that take? Would it happen like next week or in a year? No, no, it wouldn't happen next week. It <laughs> probably wouldn't happen in a year. It's probably more like thousands of years. Oh, okay, or, or more. Okay, so we, so or more, we, yeah. if we kill all the life, the, the oxygen producing life, we can still live out our lives with oxygen. <laughs> it's subsequent generation will suffocate. Yes, <clears throat> probably we could live without our lives. Okay, so what you're saying is, even though this 20% has been stable over the hist- mostly stable, it's not actually a stagnant number because we are constantly producing it and constantly removing it, and it just happens to be balanced at this number. Is that a fair right, way to right. say it? That's a fair way to say it. Okay, okay, cool. All right, all right, Matt, give me another one. All right, this this comes from uh, Grumsetuff, uh, all one word. I hope I'm pronouncing that even close to correctly. What is Whatever your you did, op- it's better than what Chuck does with names. Chuck can't pronounce anything. <laughs> what is your most optimistic explanation of the Fermi paradox? Well, I like that question. Um, oh, yeah, I think we all have our favorite answer to that one. Well, tell me what it is first. The Fermi paradox is the idea that if, if there is intelligent life, that can harness energy and get in spacecraft and journey beyond their planet, that they should have colonized the entire galaxy by now. Because once they can get to one planet and colonize that, they can just keep going. And so the Fermi paradox is summed up by the question, where are they? Mm. So what you're saying is in the lifetime of the galaxy, it doesn't really take that much time if you're intelligent by our measures, to build spacecraft and start traveling to planets, even if you can't travel at the speed of light. Right, right. That over time, you would eventually reach planets and and colonize. Okay, so, all right, so where are they? Okay, so there's the explanation I think is the real one, and then there's the one that I hope is the real one. Wait, wait, so Matt, Matt, her explanation would be, they're already here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I like that one. Yeah, that's the the funnest answer, but go on. We don't mean to talk about that. (laughs) So, you know, one answer is that it just takes too much energy. Like we, as humans, we know now what it takes to get in a spacecraft and go somewhere. That's a lot of resources. So perhaps they're just not not doing that. There's another answer that the intelligent civilization will unfortunately and inevitably self-destruct. They'll destroy their planet. They'll kill each other. They'll, they won't ever reach that. Wouldn't that be the definition place. of not being intelligent? <laughs> Yeah, well, it would be... mm -hmm. My explanation that I love is, I'll put it to you this way. Just imagine an ant ant colony in your house, you know, which you might have or your apartment. And the ants, they appear kind of, you know, dumb, but they're somewhat clever, right? Because they have a society and you see them doing like a reconnaissance. But just to be clear, just to make sure we're all on the same page, 
By an ant colony, you mean like a one of those ant habitat module things where you can see. No, I just mean it could be a ha- the, it could be that ant colony habitat, or it could just be the ants like in your house. Like oh, you might have just ants in the house. Okay, And I don't know if you've ever had this, but you'll see like a few of them kind of looking around and they might come across like a piece of cat food on your counter or something. And then shortly thereafter, you have a huge stream of them and they're all coming to get this cat food in like a little river. Well, you can mess them up if you like wipe away their trail for a moment, they kind of get lost. But I want you to imagine, you know, Neil, Matt, having a conversation with those ants. Like tell them about the universe, tell them about the Hubble Space Telescope and the vastness of of the number of stars and galaxies. And tell them about calculus and and geography. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. So what I love to imagine is that these, to these intelligent aliens out there, that we are like the ants. Like why and how would they they contact us? Okay, so Matt, Sarah's bumming us out. Now we're, first we're insignificant. Now we're just plain (laughs) stupid. (laughs) Well, well also, I I think it is worth pointing out there there are different, I mean, like, Sarah was alluded to, there are very different types of intelligence. So, you know, I've been to university. You've both spent a lot more time in academia. That We've all met people who are incredibly smart in specific ways and otherwise idiots. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay. So, you know, may, may, maybe they have the ability to travel across galaxies, but then not the ability to not shoot themselves within a very short amount of time. So the, the, maybe, official, maybe an- the official answer to the Fermi paradox, where are they? They think we're idiots. <laughs> so they- yeah. <laughs> Either they think we're idiots or we think they are for having self-destructed before they could get here. Oh, there it is. Touche. Yeah. Touche. All right. So, Matt, give me some more. So, so al- along the lines of uh, interacting with other civilizations, Eric Gross asks, let's say we discover proof of life not in our own solar system, but on some distant celestial body. Would there be any meaningful scientific value of the discovery or opportunity to expand upon the knowledge. It may, of course, have broad societal and emotional effects, but would science practitioners have any real hope of gaining more information about life forms that are at a minimum of 4.3 light years from Earth? I, I love that question. And Matt, who, who asked it? That was Eric Gross. Eric Gross, okay. Yeah, so Sarah, I love that question because generally when we think of scientific discoveries or advances, we think, okay, in five years or 10 years, engineers will get a hold of it and they'll make some new device and we'll all be living better and differently. (laughs) And so uh, life somewhere else that you can't actually have a conversation with, even if it's intelligent, are you getting secrets from them? I mean, what if you can't, or can you? Are we missing something here? It's such a great question. I mean, we are so wrapped up in the emotion and the excitement of the journey of exploration and of being the first who can try to find out what's what's out there. So in a practical sense, not really. I mean, we're not we're not doing this to find anything practical. That said, wouldn't it be amazing if there is life, intelligent life on the nearest star system for light years away and we could have a very slow conversation. Very slow. But we could imagine. <laughs> no, no witty repartee send, there. Right. Like send them a message and you know, four years later you'll get their message back and we could exchange <laughs> ideas about technology. So if we want it to be practical, like that's probably the most practical avenue. Mm. So, um, but in terms of biology, unless we learn from them through these radio signals, what their sort of biochemistry is like, we wouldn't get to compare DNA or if they have DNA at all. You wouldn't be able to do any sort of in situ kind of comparisons to advance biology on life, I would guess. Is that correct? Right. No, that's correct. That's correct. Yeah, but I don't want to sound like who was that philosopher? 
150 years ago, who said, the stars, they're just lights on the sky and and we can know, you know, how bright right. they are in yes. the location, yeah. but we will never know what they're made of. Right, and, <clears throat> and think about this, like we're just here now. Imagine a thousand years from now, you know, 10,000 years from now. Right. We may have a way to get to this. Imagine if there's life on, intelligent life on that planet and we do like a sample return. We fly something by, they send something up, we grab it, we, you know, gravitational slingshot around their star and we come back. Okay. So, uh, I, so all right, I'll just think a thousand years from now rather than okay. <laughs> next week. Okay. <laughs> well, what you just said, those, that answer segues quite neatly into this question, which I like. And th- I'm going to combine two different questions from what Tom says, who asks, what forms of communication are most likely to be able to cross between the stars? And um, Trumpet Wom, who says... How do you think we will overcome the language barrier if we ever meet another sentient life form? I love it. And, and Sarah, remember that movie, um, mm-hmm. Arrival? Arrival. Arrival? Yeah, so I got in, in trouble for, mm-hmm. and I, I knew I was going to get in trouble for saying this. I said, in the movie Arrival, they brought a physicist and a linguist to try to communicate with the alien when they should have brought an exobiologist and a cryptographer. And I got so much shit from the linguists out there because <laughs> this is their one time to appear in a movie, and there I am just dissing them. But uh, what is your right. opinion about how we would actually communicate? I mean, I love that movie. I love the concept that it may be so difficult that we may we may not find a way to communicate. Okay, so, so yeah. Matt, she just swept that know, one under Neil, the rug. Did, you hear that? Uh, you, Matt, she, like, she, she, she... Neil doesn't like any of my answers, but... She's sweeping <laughs> it. I don't know how big her rug is in the middle. <laughs> but, but, but how well, about mathematics? But, how about yeah. symbology? How about, I mean... It yeah, I like all those answers. You're okay with them yeah. or not? I like it. I like it. It would have to be something that is fundamental in a very mathematical way. I agree with that. Because math apparently applies across the universe. So if they discover something that is cosmic universal, it'll have to be the cosmic universal things we discovered as well, I presume. Right. So I wonder, so I think one of our greatest triumphs is the periodic table of elements. If we can like show that to them and see if they have a version of it. Because it'd be a lot of pantomiming initially, I would guess, Mm -hmm. uh, before anybody actually uh, communicated. Um, So... (laughs) It is funny that, you know, aliens often just spoke English, you know, in the movies. Right, right. That's why The Arrival is so great. It's such a great movie. Because <laughs> it's the first time they have these beings that have no way to really, really interact with us. Right, right, right. So, Matt, give me one more question before we wrap up this middle segment. I will do. And for the people who are watching the video rather than just the audio, I apologize for the other life form that keeps walking across my lap okay. while we're trying to record. <laughs> I have no way of communicating with him. Uh, well, uh, so I'm also going to combine these two questions because they, they're in similar themes. So Rob Carter asks, when searching for life on other planets, is there a priority of what type of life you look for? For example, would a land-based life form take precedence over an aquatic species and so forth? And then Jonathan R. Brown asks, carbon-based life on Earth developed in the oceans and diversified exponentially from there, spreading to land and beyond. Life on other worlds may develop from a different elemental base and begin on land or in other environments. Could ET life be too alien for us to recognize as life and what is the baseline? And we'll get to that after this break. <laughs> that was, see what I did there? Uh, so I, those are brilliant, amazing questions that are the foundation <laughs> of so much science fiction storytelling. But uh, Sarah, you have the commercial break to figure out what the answer before you sweep <laughs> this one under the rug. Okay. <laughs> when Star Talk Cosmic Queries returns. 
sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Time for our Patreon patrons to get a little shout-out. Zach Hughes, Brian Hurley, and Leona Shimoru. It's because of your support that we can continue to experiment and bring you the best show possible. And for anybody else listening who would like their very own Patreon shout-out, please go to patreon.com slash Radio and support us. We're back. Star Talk, Cosmic Queries, the Search for Life edition. Uh, our guest today is Sarah Seegers. Uh, Sarah, are you um, active on social media? Do you have a Twitter account? Yes, I do. It's a uh, Prof Sarah Seeger. P R O F. Prof Sarah Seeger, an S E A G E R. Okay, right. excellent. So we can all follow you there. And I assume you talk about fun stuff, like and your research and 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 the like. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And Facebook as well. You can just search for my name, Sarah Seeger, on Facebook as well. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So, Matt, we left off with a brilliant pair of questions. Uh, tell me the two names who asked it again. Yes, that was Rob Carter and Jonathan R. Brown, and they were both asking about the types of life forms that you might find on other planets, whether land-based, aquatic, and so on, and whether we'd even be able to recognize those things as life. And, and must they be based on carbon? Yeah. Yes. Well, we won't have a chance to see that life. We'll only see what life does. We'll see the byproducts of that life. Because the telescopes aren't good enough yet. Right, right. We'll only see the planet far away. We won't even see it in some cases. It'll be a pale blue dot, or we'll just see its atmosphere as backlit by its star. So we won't see the animals. So the point is, when you study the chemistry of the atmosphere, it's a remarkable feat of, of observational astrophysics because the light from the star behind it passes through the transparent atmosphere and then the molecules leave their fingerprint, and that's what you're studying. Right, that's the way we're studying exoplanet atmospheres today. So we're that's a right. long way off from you watching something wave to you in the in the telescope lens. We are, but, you know, funnily oh, enough, but, it doesn't you got stop an answer us. There. <laughs> yeah, I do have an answer. That's good. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it doesn't stop us from speculating about what life might be like. I want you to just imagine for a moment, because there are, exoplanets are so diverse. They're different masses and sizes, and... We're imagining their atmospheres are all, are all different. Imagine a planet where the atmosphere is so massive and heavy that it's a similar density to water. 
So imagine you have a water ocean and above that is a heavy, dense atmosphere. You could imagine things like flying fish that can just move between the atmosphere and the water because it's the same same density. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we've all, we, we love to imagine a planet that is somewhat dark because of a massive atmosphere. And we like to imagine this idea of birds with giant wings that are photosynthetic, that the wings are like giant plant leaves. They can fly up to where there is sunlight and gain energy from the sun that way. Sarah, that reminds me, some science fiction writer, forgive me for not remembering, there was a punchline in it where the aliens come to the Earth, they see what we all do here, and then they return to their home planet, and they report on what they discovered, and they said, they're all made of meat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because we basically eat each other, right? Life eats other life unless you're a plant, in which case you eat sunlight. Right, wow, okay. So, I mean, just think about that. So, if you are a bird that has photosynthetic wings, then... To eat, you like you just said, you just go to an altitude where you get the sunlight and then come back down, and you're not killing anything for your survival. But then you would presumably uh, be prey for whatever is in the lower levels because they aren't accessing that sunlight. You, you'd you want to make sure they're photosynthetic okay. too. <laughs> but imagine a whole world where that's the case and they come visit us mm -hmm. and we have all these slaughterhouses and not just us, other animals eat other animals. And this would look like a really bloody, nasty place to them. I mean, you guys ever Very think nasty. about that? No, no, but it sounds pretty scary. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, so tell me also about a carbon-based life. How, how important is that? Yeah, because well, Sam Couch actually asked this specifically while we're doing that. He, uh, Sam asked, um, is it possible to have life elsewhere that is not carbon-based? And if so, what would that look like compared to carbon-based life? And what would be the requirements for that life to survive? Yeah, there really hasn't been a lot of solid work done in that area. It's, it's really hard to construct, you know, a biochemistry of like a completely different type of life out there. We're not sure if silicon-based life is even really possible. We um, think silicon, you know, a lot of our silicon here on Earth, for example, it's locked away into rocks and, and there's just not a lot of silicon. We think silicon compounds are often, they dissolve in water too easily. So I think the jury is still out on that one. Okay, so even though silicon makes the same families of molecules as carbon does, because they, they're top and bottom to each other on the periodic table, as we learned in high school chemistry, that they'll all make the same kinds of molecules. But you're saying the, the other properties of silicon molecules make them wholly different from what carbon is giving us. So, yes, so, yes. so our search for life is justifiably carbon-based, not to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, you said it well. That's right. Okay. Matt, did she sweep any of that under the no, rug? No, I, I think that rug is fully lifted and the items underneath <laughs> are exposed to the elements. <laughs> and All right. So, Matt, keep all going. All right. Okay. This, one, this one's pitting host against guest here. Josh V asks, uh. Dr. Tyson has spoken in the past Star Talk episodes about the idea of Goldilocks zones being antiquated at best and possibly the wrong approach to searching for life. What is Professor Seeger's opinion on the use and def definition of Goldilocks zones as it applies to what galactic locations are prioritized in searching the vast cosmos. Wow, actually, this is one where Neil and I agree, actually. So just to go into some detail, the habitable zone, it's a good construct, the Goldilocks zone. It helps us think of where we should be looking for planets. But in reality, I think it really depends on the individual planet. Like, I want you to imagine a planet 
that instead of having an atmosphere like ours that is mostly nitrogen and it has a good amount of oxygen, imagine a planet that has a hydrogen atmosphere dominated by hydrogen. Did you know hydrogen is a nasty, potent greenhouse gas, way worse than any of the gases we have on, on our planet Earth? So a planet with hydrogen, it turns out, it could still be the right temperature far outside to what we think of as this traditional Goldilocks zone because it has such a powerful greenhouse. And they wouldn't call it nasty. They would be thankful for it. They would need it. Or their yes, they would need would it. Right, right. Right, right. So I like to think of habitability concept as being, you know, planet independent, not your location in the galaxy or your location in your own planetary system, but dependent on the properties of the planet. So that's an enlightened modern view of the concept of a zone. So the zone is not a, it's a virtual zone in that sense, because it can take, it, it's, it can be in places that are not just in the, in the narrow-minded swath <laughs> That's around the sun. So that's yes. good. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about these other kinds of Goldilocks zones you're referencing. So, uh, so yeah. So, so, and for all we know, even the definitions we've come up with now, 20, 30 years from now, um, Carrie and Violetta, the eight-year-olds, or the eight and 12-year-olds listening to this, in their day, they might look back at our definition, broadened definition of a Goldilocks zone and say, what do they know? They <laughs> <laughs> because they, for, for all we know, there could be like life inside of volcanoes or something. I mean, who, who knows? But right, right, and we haven't observed any rocky exoplanet atmospheres yet. We're just beginning. So right, right, right. Okay, very good, very good. So what I want to do now is go into a semi lightning round. And so Sarah, pretend you're on the evening news, and the whole interview is going to last just a couple of minutes. And so. So this, this is your soundbite quiz, really. Can you, can you give us a soundbite? You've been very good in this program up to up so far. So I, I think you'll come out in flying colors. So Matt, let's see how many questions All we can right. squeeze in. We've, we've we only actually got a day. few questions left, if that's... Uh, okay. I think I know the answer to this one. But uh, Andrew Gundro asks, my question is about the probability of life in the universe finding each other. If we think of the universe as infinite and the axis of time as infinite, does it stand to reason that the probability of life in different areas of the universe finding each other on both axes, time and space, approaches zero? Ooh, I like that. Um, my guess is no, but uh, I, I want to hear from the scientists. Okay, I didn't totally get that, the last part of that. So he's saying if everything's infinite, life should find each other. So why S shouldn't find infinite? each other? I, I, think, oh. I think the question is, if we're dealing with an infinite universe, and a finite amount of life, would that not be so far apart from each other that it couldn't find it, each other? No, he, like had it, he added another dimension. It, let's say life is there and we're here, and we go there and we find them, okay? If space is infinite, that reduces the likelihood that they're just going to be there. They're going to be probably much farther away from us. That's the first axis on this. The other axis is... Maybe the life is there now, but they're not going to be there in 100 years. So you have to intersect not only in time, but in place. And if both the time axis and the place axis are infinite, what hope do we have of ever making contact? I think I got his question. I think you got it. I think, I think I got that, that is the question. Yes. I think you got it. Yes, yes. It really all depends on how common life is. If life is rare then yes, that question is an answer is valid. But we all want to believe that. We, well, we see, but we see the ingredients for life everywhere. And so we have every reason to hope that on each rocky planet, that's the right temperature, that there's a chance for life there, in which case life is, yeah. Okay, and, but, but in terms of how, how far we've actually searched, my favorite reference there is 
an, an analogy given by a Jill Tarter of the SETI Institute. And I've, I've, this was so good. I've given this a hundred times since then. And I, we got her to say it on Star Talk. So we, we have it mm-hmm. bronzed in our, in our archives. It's, you can ask how much of the universe have we searched before we start saying there's no life here. And if you look at all the parameter space, time, space, frequency of bandwidth, right? You could be trying to say hi in one frequency and they're trying to say hi in another frequency and there's ships passing in the night and you both conclude that there is no sign of intelligent life. So she said, it's like going up to the ocean, scooping a cup, an empty cup, filling it with ocean water, looking at it and saying, there are no whales in the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, in terms of how much total volume that of space, time, frequency is searchable. And so that was depressing, but fascinating at the same time for me. Right, right. But at the same time, now I'm going to turn the tables and do the opposite of trashing all the, the comments. Like, if you're scooping up that one glass of water, surely there is some kind of life in there. Mm, so we're thinking life. that we can look at the nearest stars and the nearest planets and that the ingredients for life are everywhere, and that they should come together often enough that we have a chance of finding signs of life. Excellent. Excellent. So that's like taking a scoop of anywhere soil on Earth is going to be life in it, no matter what. Right, or any air, air parcel. Even air. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Matt, let's slip in a couple more questions. What do you All right. John David Newman says, is it possible that the galaxies we observe relatively easily are less likely to have life than the dwarf galaxies or wandering stars in deep space, which are more difficult to see? Could wandering stars or dwarf galaxies in deep space be less threatening to life? Well, at the moment, we're only able to observe the very nearest stars. We can't see other galaxies. So that question's out of our, out of our purview at the moment. However, each star is fairly isolated. And each star has its own planetary system as far as we can tell. So it shouldn't matter which galaxy the planet is in in relation to whether life is there or not. And we see the same kinds of stars in most galaxies. There are differences, of course, but that repeats enough. I, I, so I agree with you. We, we, we'll be perfectly happy searching stars in our own galaxy without having to go to others to just to wonder if it's different. Um, but a, a, another point implicit there is there are some galaxies that have very rocking active nuclei with very deadly radiation coming out. And it could be that some galaxies are hostile to the formation of complex molecules and more peaceful galaxies like the dwarf galaxies um, that they may be more hospitable. I mean, we don't really know this yet. Uh, and I, I agree, Sarah, with, there's still much more searching to go before we start creating a galactic model for what life would, would or should be like. Let's get one more question, Matt. See if we can get All right, it. well, I'm going to combine these two then. I, I, I'm, I'm really on a combining kick today. Okay. These are both quite philosophical. Jet Thomas asks, we as a species love to stimulate our senses by watching movies, listening to music, telling stories and more. Assuming an alien civilization is interested in leisure, could we hypothesize what a, a stimulation of different senses would look like outside of our familiar five and look for evidence of such things? And then Chris Hampton says, what effect do you think the discovery of alien life would have on society? Would borders eventually dissipate and self-identification move uh, from Russian, American, etc., to Earthling? How long would the initial pandemonium last? So music, society, <laughs> I, culture, I and, and art. How would everything change? In, in one soundbite, I think I, I was going to ask Neil for that because Neil is so articulate and, and, and good at speaking. I think you should take a crack at it. I'll, I'll, I'll take a quick crack at it. I, it is interesting. When you find something that's more other than you are from, each, from among yourselves, 
it does act as a kind of binding force. And sometimes for the good, sometimes not. But uh, I had hoped that we would have had this kind of binding force in the face of battling COVID. COVID was like an alien that it doesn't care what your skin color is or your gender or gender expression. It doesn't care. It'll infect you. And, and that would be a good place to band together and fight it. And we failed that test. So I wish I had more confidence than I currently do in how we would react collectively as a species to uh, an alien, be they friendly or hostile. And the other question was what? It was about what kind of uh, version of stories and art and music and oh, what yeah. alien yeah. civilization have and how would it differ from ours or Sarah, how do you guys, interact with it? Sarah, do you guys think much about the senses that an alien might have? No. <laughs> I mean, is that is that something that you could look for, look for evidence of, or ways that they could have changed their environment to accommodate the different ways that they that they interact with each other? No, I mean, if you think about it for a moment, our oxygen on Earth, life on Earth, bacteria, cyanobacteria, you know, billions of years ago, they re-engineered our atmosphere. They completely changed our atmosphere, so it was unrecognizable. So we can see giant things like that. But small things like that animals do or that aliens would do, those are, are out of our a possibility for now. Yeah, but you're, you're being like straight scientists there. But now let me ask you, Sarah Seeger, the human being who watches science fiction movies, what, <laughs> can you imagine well, if, if an alien had another sense, what might it be? Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't have a good answer for that. I, I can take any answer. <laughs> it doesn't have to be good. Well, sometimes I, I do like to think about our own planet Earth and all the intelligent life here, you know, like the dolphins mm -hmm. and octopus. And there's a lot of creatures here that we, we, we think are highly intelligent. And mm -hmm. so I do like to think about how they interact with each other, what signs they give each other. My, my favorite New Yorker comic, and we got to end on, was there were two dolphins swimming together and they're looking up at two humans talking to each other, looking out of the water and they see them. And one dolphin says to the other, they face each other and make sounds, but it's not clear that they're actually communicating. <laughs> <laughs> Dolphin with brains bigger than ours. Uh, Sarah, it has been a delight to have you on. Um, and we, we neglected to even mention that you were co-author on the, the recent discovery of phosphine, a molecule on, in the upper atmosphere of Venus, a possible product of life. I know that that result is still getting contested, but it's fun to watch science at its best when ideas come forth and people try to explain it in multiple ways. So just good luck on that. It was great to Thank see you, you uh, active yeah. in that. And, and in your, in your uh, part memoir, The Smallest Lights in the Universe, it's, it's a delight to see that contains a firsthand account, not only of your life, but the birth of an entire cottage industry in our beloved field of astrophysics, uh, the search for exoplanets and the search for life itself. So great to have you on and good luck with Thank that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. And Matt, always good to have you, man. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having and, me. And we'll look for you on Probably Science. Yes, please. And I got Thank it straight. You, All right. one. And also your <laughs> book as well, Neil. We've got to give that another plug. Oh, so another, another, another plug for Cosmic Queries. If you like this format... Um, and if you're listening, you probably do, because it's one of our most popular. Uh, we just put it all in one book. It's got the deepest questions. Right? What is life? And what is the universe made of? And how, will, how did it begin? How will it end? And are there multiverses? And so we're very proud of that book as a Star Talk community, because it's 
uh, a lot of it has been inspired by shows like this, where you write in and ask your deepest questions. And that inspired us to put the, the book out there. And it's a product of the Star Talk. Uh, family. This has been Star Talk Cosmic Queries. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. As always, keep looking up. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.